Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. It is the weekly podcast where I, your host, Connor McQuibby, talk to various folks from Northern Nevada. The goal of this podcast is to be a little bit of something for everyone. So I have a variety of guests from news and politics, nonprofits, businesses, arts and culture, a little bit of something for everyone on this show. My guest on this week's episode is Maricela Gutierrez-Rodriguez. She is the executive director of the Justin Hope Foundation an organization that works to get people with various disabilities into the workforce. We talked about the benefits of working in the community, of connecting with people, the various services and job trainings that the Justin Hope Foundation provides, some of the superpowers or benefits of people that have various disabilities that sometimes can do better at various tasks at work and are beneficial to employers. Before we get to the interview, a quick note about how you can help Renoites be successful. We're a little bit over 100 episodes now. This show's been going on for two and a half years, but I still meet people all the time who don't even know that this show exists. Regular podcast listeners who live in Reno, they should know this show exists. So you can help me by spreading the word about the show. It is very free to share posts on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, even comments. If you enjoy this episode, comment on the post on Facebook or Instagram. That helps the algorithm show it to more people. It really does make a huge difference. Word of mouth means everything for a local podcast like this. My goal is to be financially sustainable, to be listener-supported and community-supported rather than ad-based. Ads are very annoying. So you can do your part by telling people about the show, spreading the word. And if you would like to support the show financially, you can do that as well on Patreon. That's a site that lets creators like me connect directly with supporters. On Patreon, you can donate as little as $3 a month to help support the show. Learn more at patreon.com slash renoites. And now this week's guest, Maricela Gutierrez-Rodriguez. Maricela Gutierrez-Rodriguez from the Justin Hope Foundation. Welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first podcast interview. It's funny. I'm finding that I have had a lot of guests who have not been on a podcast before just because there aren't a lot of local opportunities to do a podcast. So it's not unusual to be a first-time podcast guest on this show. Uh, but that's what I like about this format is it's pretty conversational and casual. So you're from the the Justin Hope Foundation. To start, can you just tell me what the Justin Hope Foundation is and kind of the story behind it? Absolutely. So we are a nonprofit organization based out of the Reno Sparks area. We were founded about 12 years ago by parents whose son has autism, and he was diagnosed at the age of two. So they were just very overwhelmed with what types of services and resources would benefit him. That's really what inspired the Justin Ho Foundation. They started raising money for other organizations that worked with children and young adults, everybody on the spectrum, all ages. But they realized that their money wasn't going towards the causes and the programs that they really wanted to um benefit the community. So they decided to start the Justin Hope Foundation. We have been around for quite some time. Only within the last three years, we brought on a full-time paid staff. So that is myself. I'm the first paid executive director. So we're really taking it on and growing and trying to find what's missing in the community. Everything we do is really focused on the family and the support network because we want to make sure that everybody in the family dynamic or the support network dynamic is supported because we strongly believe that if the parent is struggling or the caregiver is struggling, then And ultimately, the individual with a disability is going to struggle. So everything we do really supports everyone. Mm -hmm. Our mission really is to provide opportunities through education and training to empower this population. So we do a lot of things that are focused on 
providing resources, information to families so they know what's happening in the community and things that might benefit them. But we really focus on educating and training the individual, empowering them, whether it's just to talk about their diagnosis or it's maybe learning a skill such as community safety and awareness in the community. Um, Because there's so many things that these individuals can do to be independent, they just need a little bit of support and Mm. education. Mm -hmm. When you talk about disabilities, there's a wide range, obviously, of different types of disabilities. And you mentioned autism. What types of disabilities in particular does the foundation benefit and help people with? Is it developmental disabilities? Is it mental disabilities? Can you talk about the type of people that the foundation is helping? We work with individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities of all ages. And so that's Down syndrome, autism, cerebral palsy, but mostly autism, just because it's much more prevalent in our community and all ages. Sometimes we get families who are new to the area and they don't know where to start, or we get families who have children who are just newly diagnosed and don't know what services would be beneficial. We also work with families who their child is in their 40s and have older parents and they don't even know what to do because that end of life stuff is happening and they Mm. don't know how to help the individual if something were to happen to the family. But we also work with a lot of young adults who are transitioning out of high school and just try to navigate those services because after high school, unfortunately, there's such a lack of support in our community. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Because I noticed that there is this focus on younger adults who are coming out of high school. And part of the challenge I imagine is that during school, there is some kind of built in inclusivity and support in our school systems. But then once you're out of the school system, you don't really have a natural thing to move to. A lot of people go from school to work. A lot of people with disabilities can't make that quick move from school to work as easily, right? Can you talk a little bit about the kind of institutional support that goes away when you become an adult? Absolutely. So when someone is in school, they oftentimes have what's called an IEP, an individualized education plan, um, or a 504. And it's very clear what supports they need in the school system, what the school district is going to provide for them, and then they're done with school. And a lot of times what people don't know is that individuals that have an IEP, they can stay in school until the age of 22. So their 22nd birthday. So that gives them some time to help with that transitional age. And the school system, they really try to focus on transitions and helping them do some sort of like career exploration or help with that transition. But, you know, in all reality, there's so many students and some of them might fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And so once they are done with school, and they're no longer going. If the family hasn't set up a system, if they're going to a day program, which is just what it sounds like a day program, individuals go and learn life skills and uh, learn social skills and hang out with peers. Or if they don't have a system of jobs training where they learn job skills before they get an actual job in the community um, or higher education, whatever that may be, if they're not set up with the proper state agencies, it takes a really long time to get through those intakes and assessments and all of those things. And so essentially families don't look for social programs that are out there. If families don't take the initiative to find things out there, then the individual essentially is kind of up to, it's up to them to find what's going on in the community. And we find it that it's very common where families don't know where to start or don't know how to seek these services, where the individual kind of just stays home and watches TV. And mm-hmm. really, it becomes an isolation issue. Yeah, is part of what you do helping people navigate those services and those programs and kind of connect people with those services. And do you have events and 
spaces for those people? Or are you just connecting people with services? Both, actually. So we do what's called a resource intake. And so we sit down with the entire family dynamic and the individual and kind of just figure out their wants and needs, because that's really important. The family wants is very sometimes very different than what the individual wants. Mm. And so we try to find kind of a middle ground or something that would benefit everyone and then make sure they are connected that way. Some families take this information and they are good to go and they do it on their own. But some families need that extra support, whether it's helping with appointments, um, filling out paperwork, and so any level of support. But what we also do kind of just to fill this gap is we have what's called a empowerment exchange. And it is a networking opportunity once a month for these young adults who are interested in working or want to work. And so it's very disability inclusive. And it's out in the community because we're very big on inclusion and going out to the community and working on social skills and really start to create a space to inspire these individuals to want to work or work out in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole like range and spectrum of disabilities with different accommodations needed with different ways of working. Can you talk a little bit about how you address the, you know, the wide spectrum of disabilities and different needs? Within this last six months, we actually launched a job program called HopeWorks. And it is for individuals who want to go out in the community and work and have those skills to have competitive employment, they just might need a little bit of support. And it is been pretty incredible. But I also am very aware that there's other individuals who have more severe needs or complex medical needs that are not being addressed. And we're a very small organization that we're truly working on building resources and support so we can serve these individuals. But for those individuals who just need more support than we can offer, we make sure that we connect them to amazing organizations in our community, like Amplify Life. They have a lot of life skills programs, and they do things on weekly basis that is perfect for these individuals and their team is amazing. Individuals who need a little bit more support in job training that we can't provide, we refer them to other organizations like UCP, United Cerebral Palsy organization here in town. And so there's other agencies. And part of what we do is we want to make sure that we're not overlapping services because Mm. there's such a wide need of services and they're already pretty limited in our community. So we just want to make sure that we don't overlap. So if there is an individual who we cannot support, we make sure that we send them to somewhere Mm. that, that can support them. Yeah, you mentioned competitive employment. When you're talking about people with disabilities going into the workforce, I know there is sub-minimum wage employment in some areas where people who have disabilities are employed, but they're not being paid the minimum wage. Can you talk about the competitive employment part and making sure that these jobs are providing financial resources for people and and what that looks like or what it should look like? Absolutely. I'd love to share a little bit about the history of what inspired our program. And it really was sub-minimum wage, but also we were in an era of the pandemic and all of these issues with unemployment and our individuals just not having the supports needed in place. And so during the pandemic, our organization was really impacted like many organizations. And so we decided to close our doors for a few weeks and decide where are we going. And you know, at the end of the day, we decided to tackle employment because unfortunately, money is what decides our quality of life, whether we like it or not. Mm. And so what we were saying is that a lot of these individuals get a lot of support through government benefits, but they still kind of 
meet their basic necessities. And so that's kind of what inspired the job training program. But while we were developing and researching and just trying to find what would make our program unique here in the Reno area, it came down to us deciding if we wanted to do subminimum wage or competitive employment. And what subminimum wage is, it's essentially a certificate that employers can get. It's called 14C. And it allows them to pay individuals with disabilities less than minimum wage. And I've seen some studies out there that say it can be down to 22 cents an hour, which is very low. I mean, that doesn't really cover anything, Mm -hmm. especially nowadays. At the end of the day, it really is a civil and human rights issue that you're paying an individual with a disability less than somebody with of able body or somebody who has um, of able skills. And so we didn't want to do that. We are very big on inclusion and equity within the, our organization that we wanted to work with employers who are interested in hiring and increasing their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So minimum wage all over the country is actually being eliminated here in the state of Nevada. There was just a bill passed through the ARC of Nevada, an agency that promotes policy and advocacy to help this population. And so they did away with it. And so now there are a few organizations in Nevada. That's the good thing. There's only about five, if I recall, agencies that use subminimum wage um, that have to do away with it. And Mm. so I don't know what that process is going to entail, but... So it is a controversial issue because then there is now this these other individuals that do have complex medical needs or the type of environment that they work in is typically called the sheltered workshop where individuals go and they work and then they go home. But within their work environment, they are also learning life skills. They get to socialize. It brings them such a sense of purpose mm-hmm. where they might not be able to hold competitive employment. Right. And so this type of environment really works well for them. And these are the individuals who really don't care about a paycheck. They just want to go and socialize. And it brings them such a sense of enjoyment and accomplishment to be able to go to a place that and they're not home all day. Mm-hmm. Um, so with our organization and our mission, we really strive for inclusion and competitive employment, integrated employment, and helping our individuals be out in the community just like their typical peer. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is accommodations sometimes are not actually that difficult of a thing to provide if businesses take the time to figure out what those accommodations might look like. Can you talk a little bit about what accommodations look like for people with disabilities and kind of how businesses can be more inclusive without it being a huge deal or big difficulty for them? Sometimes accommodations just means a written task list instead of verbal. It might mean looking at the essential job functions and finding ways around it. Um, And I'll give you an example. One of our young adults, he's in his 40s. He is so smart, so funny, so independent, but he truly just needs written task lists. And so if I tell him verbally, within a few minutes, he might forget or he might get distracted. But we have found that if you give him a task list, it's written, he follows it. And that's all he needs. How simple is that? It doesn't cost any money. Mm. It really ensures that everyone in the workplace is successful and that the job is getting done. I have another young man, for example, that has uh, standing doctor's appointments. His doctor's appointment ends by nine o'clock so he can get to work at 9.30. A lot of jobs out there that are steady are either eight to four, eight to five, nine to five. And so finding an employer that is willing to allow him to start just half an hour later and leave half an hour later um, has been a little bit challenging, which is, you know, essentially not a big deal, but Mm -hmm. simple things like that. Um, And the great thing is that we, within our program, we help individuals identify what their reasonable accommodations are because 
some employers might not really be willing to work with these individuals. So we want to empower them to say, hey, this is what I need. Can we figure it out in the workplace? And that way it's not on the employer. If the employer is responsible for, you know, tons of other employees, it kind of just takes that off of their plate and the individual could then advocate for themselves in any work environment. Yeah. Has part of the problem been not being able to communicate clearly what those needs or accommodations are? So businesses are like, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to hire this person, right? Is is the clarity a big part of making those connections? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for our program really has been breaking the stigma behind hiring somebody with a disability. There's so many myths out there, like it's a liability or that the employer essentially is going to get sued for discrimination, that the individual might not be able to do all of the tasks that they're required to. And so employers have just years and years of bad myths and stigma and ideas behind what it means to hire someone with a disability. And so that really is a challenge, educating them and identifying what some of the benefits are and that it's really hiring somebody who is responsible, eager, wants to get to work. And there's, you know, truly so many studies out there that Mm -hmm. show individuals have a much higher retention rate and all of these good things that really benefit hiring somebody with a disability. Yeah. Tell me more about the retention rate and kind of the Um, the employee satisfaction, I imagine that having a reliable, stable job is very rewarding and satisfying for people who often don't have those opportunities. Can you just talk a little bit more about that benefit of having an employee who wants to be there and will probably stay longer that that element of hiring people who might not be hired necessarily everywhere else? A lot of the individuals that I have personally worked with throughout the many years I've worked with this population get such a sense of purpose by going out into the community and being part of giving back, being a part, talking to people. Just that sense of community, oftentimes this population is very isolated. And so individuals truly just want to go out there and be a part of a team, want to socialize. They are so eager to work and tend to stay a lot longer in places that they like, because oftentimes it doesn't even come down to the amount of money they make. It's down to the environment that they enjoy it. And so they want to work. We have done quite a bit of research and collected data of employers here in town who do hire the individuals. Mm. And they have stated over and over that they just help with morale. They are such a pleasure to work with. Their employees love to work with them. Um, And so there's tons of benefits of hiring individuals. But really, at the end of the day, it's somebody who can do the job who is very reliable. There's so many jobs out there that are not being filled. And, you know, there's tons of turnover. And I can imagine it's really difficult on employers. So I really just hope that they expand their um, mind and opportunities to allow us to to help individuals get connected to these types of jobs, because they are going to really, really benefit from working with us and these individuals. And I, I understand that it comes down to being a little bit afraid. One of the biggest things or feedback that I've gotten from employers is that they are afraid that they're going to get sued for discrimination. And obviously that is can take a toll on a business like it cost a lot of money to go through litigation. Mm -hmm. And so just explaining that individuals have to meet the requirements of the job duties. And if they don't, then that's just not the job for them. Mm -hmm. There's so many components to to this. But at the end of the day, it's just finding employers who who need employees to do the work who are going to stay along and are going to enjoy the job. Yeah. Uh, We talk a lot when we're talking about people with disabilities about accommodations and things that they can't do or things that they need to do in a different way. But a lot of conversation around especially neurodivergence and different uh, disabilities, 
that have super abilities along with them, right? So you might have a disability or you have ADHD and you can't focus on things, but you also have the ability to hyper-focus on tasks. And some of those might be real benefits to employers. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, you know, you talked about stigma. And so we're always looking at these negatives and these Mm -hmm. downsides, but there's some really impressive and really cool things that we could talk about too and focus on. Can you talk a little bit about some of the underappreciated elements that these people are bringing to the job? I love so much that you mentioned that because the pillar of HopeWorks is finding everyone's strengths and their wants and needs and finding a job of their interest in that way. And so we rarely focus on things that they can't do. We really focus on harnessing their superpowers. Mm -hmm. And that's what I call them, their superpowers. And again, I, I have so many stories, but one young man in particular, his memory is incredible. It's so much better than my memory. And I tell him all the time, I wish that I wish that we could swap brains because <laughs> his memory skills just, oh gosh, gosh, I can't even tell you. But truly, uh, this young man, for example, he remembers everything. He's incredibly timely. Because he remembers his appointments, he's already thinking about him days in advance. Um, and so he is going to be on time. He's going to remember everything you've said. He's going to show him once. And I promise you, he's rarely going to make a mistake because he's memorized what to do. However, he has some social skills that we're working with. Um, He's learning how to have appropriate conversations in the workplace, just like us in the workplace. We have to learn what we can and cannot say. Um, And he has some social anxiety that we're working through. So having great memory skills for an employer, that's huge because that just is less time that you have to train somebody. Mm -hmm. They pick it up right away. That is one. I have another young woman who has a lot of difficulty reading and writing. But again, her memory, show her an example. Once she's a very visual learner, you're not going to have to show her again. And so employers will look at that and say, oh, you cannot read, you cannot write. I'm sorry, you're not a candidate. But if we can work around it, like we actually just got her a text-to-speech pen where she can highlight text and it reads it to her. That one time that she highlights it and it reads it to her verbally, she she got it. She's picked that up. So that's an accommodation that she can bring to the table. Say, mm. I need this pen. I cannot read and I cannot write. However, this is what I use. Is that okay? And most employers are going to be okay with that. It's just, you know, now empowering her to to use that in public places and letting her know that's okay. Your superpower is your memory. Reading and writing, you have a pen to help you and support yeah. you. Right on. Uh, on the topic of stigma, it's not just in the workplace, right? It's generally kind of across our culture. But it seems like that's changed a lot in terms of the way that we talk about disabilities, the language that we use. How do you think we're doing on dealing with stigma around disabilities more broadly? And kind of what would you like to see? I think because I work in this population with this population every day very closely, I really have seen such a difference. I've been working with individuals with disabilities for over 10 years. I started off as a teacher's aide in a classroom for children with autism in in Washoe County, gosh, over 10 years ago. I've worked with the city of Reno and I've done some other things. So I've really have seen our community grow in terms of inclusion. And I think we're on the right track. Um, But I think I think what we can do collectively is start talking about individual strengths and their superpowers and what they bring to our community and what they bring to all of our spaces versus what they cannot do. Because there is such a history of when you talk about someone with a disability, it's so negative. It's, you know, usually associated what they can't do versus what they can do in all of those strengths. Um, and so I think the more that we talk about their strengths and what they bring to our workplaces and what they bring to our community spaces is really going to make a difference. But I have seen quite a bit of growth since I started. Mm-hmm 
started working with this population. Yeah, I think in the terms of the language of how we speak about disabilities, the term neurodivergence is really increased in kind of awareness and usage. Can you talk about that term neurodivergence and what it means and kind of how it fits into the work that you do? Yeah, so the language that we use is we call a very person-centered. It's around the person versus that diagnosis. And neurodivergent is one of those things that encompasses like the... um, differences between our brains. And a lot of people use it. I sit on a board of an organization that was just founded called Autistic Resilience Network. And it was founded by someone with autism who really wants to provide unique needs and opportunities for neurodiverse individuals. We were talking about our mission and our terminology and what we felt was best. And I always refer to self-advocates when it comes to terminology in our programs, because I don't have anybody in my immediate life that has an intellectual or developmental disability. So I'm always really careful on the words that I use. And I want to be really sensitive to what terminology they prefer. Neurodivergent was one of those things that has been around for some time, but it's just really popping up in mainstream media. The terminology that she has sent to us is she says that neurodivergent people think and process differently than neurotypical people. Now, neurotypical people are the ones who think and process in a typical way, so majority way. And she says a group of neurotypical and neurodivergent people would be neurodiverse. And so Really, the terminology neurodivergent is when we are talking about these individuals who don't think and process like the majority. So, Mm. you know, this population. And so, you know, in honor of the amazing work that she's doing, I just want to put it out there in the world that neurodivergent individuals is kind of the terminology that we want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of this also has been driven lately on by social media and people being able to connect online. I know we're talking a lot about, you know, locally in your organization, but can you talk a little bit about just broadly as a culture and as a society, as we've been able to connect with more people who have maybe similar disabilities or we're able to see and communicate more easily through the use of social media and the internet and stuff? Have you found that to be a way that helps people understand themselves and others better? And kind of what do you think of the online and internet sort of conversation around neurodiversity? I mean, we are in 2023, and it's been pretty incredible to see some of these um, things that are highlighting individuals who are neurodivergent. So I'm not sure if you are familiar with a show called Atypical, but it's about a young man who is on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it shows him through his high school journey and going on into adulthood. And it's such a neat way to see that in mainstream media. And there's these other shows of individuals on the spectrum trying to find love. And Mm -hmm. recently, I just saw a trailer to one for its individuals who have Down syndrome trying to find love. There's uh, such a, a history with disabilities that sheds people in a negative light. And now there are shows showing individuals and the amazing lives that they are living and the obstacles they are facing, just like us trying to find love and going on dating shows and going on dates and using apps to find to find romantic connections and social connections. And so I think that it's such a neat opportunity for just the general public to see these individuals in such a different light that they might not know of. Because if you don't have an immediate connection to someone with a disability, or you don't have a family member, or you don't work in this profession, then your views and your opinions on um, this population, it's very limited. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a neat way to be able to show, to highlight this. And we try to heavily use our social media platforms to show our in- programs, highlight our individuals, show the partnerships that we are establishing in the community, because 
social media is just a really neat visual way to be able to showcase what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me more about the empowerment exchange thing that you were talking about. So it's a networking mixer that you've started doing. That's an opportunity for, is it just meeting? Is it networking for jobs? Who are the people that are participating in? What do those events look like? A little bit of both. So Empowerment Exchange was really inspired by all of the networking events that I go to. I have to do a ton for work, like mm-hmm. a lot of people. It allows me an opportunity to socialize and network and learn about other jobs, but also learn about other employers and really just to get a good understanding of the workforce and work opportunities in the community. There's tons available. I mean, there's so many organizations and things that happen on a weekly basis. So when I started thinking about a social event for our participants, I really thought like, what better way to work on work? skills than a networking event. Mm. And that's how the Empowerment Exchange was kind of brought up. It's disability inclusive. We've only had three and we've partnered with really neat businesses and agencies in the community. Like we've done Voodoo Brewery and Coffee and Comics and we went to the ACES Stadium. We really create a space that allows these participants and attendees to socialize. So we do speed networking and things that promote socialization. And so we've only had three. So our goal is to bring in more and more individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities who, again, want to work or are interested in working to the mix. But also our goal is to then partner with some of these networking um, communities that are already happening and to try to create, you know, really inclusive environment for individuals to practice these skills that they've been working on. Mm -hmm. Is a big part of it the I mean, you talk about job skills and training job skills, but is this largely a social skill practice kind of goal? Or is it both of those things in one? Really both of those things in one. A huge driver to our program is social skills because individuals can have so many skills and abilities and they can learn the job duties. The social skills components kind of what affects their ability to stay employed. So advocating, asking questions and all of those things that are important. And so it's a huge social skill driver, but also always an emphasis on employment because at the end of the day, that's our goal for our HopeWorks program is to drive successful integrated employment. Yeah. What kind of training do you do for employers? Do you work directly with employers to train them on how to navigate these situations and how to do hiring in a equitable way? Um, what are those relationships like with you and employers? Yeah. So our program is only six months old. So currently our goal is identifying jobs that our participants are interested in. That's the biggest thing is that, you know, we don't want to put them in places where jobs are available because mm-hmm. they will not be successful. They really have to think about the environment, the size of the company. Do they want to work in a place where they have to socialize versus, you know, not socialize? And then once we've identified a few of those em- employers and companies, then we reach out to employers and start to really advocate for what it means to have a staff member who's going to be very reliable. And then we work with HR, we work with the staff, we work with the managers, um, and we do training on just employment rights and we try to make it less scary and Mm. we approach it in a way that allows the company to increase uh, their dei efforts versus all of those scary things that they might be scared of so we try to make it seem like it's going to be an amazing opportunity for you for the employee this is what you need to know and we are here for all stages of the support so from the time that the applicant applies to the interview process to the time that they're hired um, and we might check in every once in a while to make sure things are going well but it begins at really early stages Mm -hmm. Um, and again we try to make it very positive and just want to involve everybody because we do know that jobs have turnover so it's not even just about the owner of the company or the manager even you know it's so important to train staff that work with the individuals on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. do you think that disability is included enough in dei we hear a lot about diversity equity and inclusion 
But I think very often we just think about racial and gender type of inclusion. I feel like disability sometimes gets dropped off or as an afterthought maybe in DEI efforts. Do you find that to be the case? Or do you think that disability gets the attention that it deserves in DEI conversations? I think there's so there's such a, a lacking presence of disabilities within DEI efforts. And I say that through a personal perspective because I am huge on DEI and other parts of my life that don't involve disabilities. I have such a passion for bringing DEI to the nonprofit sector. But through my research, I've noticed that there's such a, a lack of education on disabilities. And there are a few trainings out there that talk about invisible disabilities versus not, but there's so much work that can be done specifically for, you know, DEI efforts and educating individuals on on being more inclusive and being a diverse workforce, but including disabilities. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I know you do with training is with first responders, because I know that's also an issue where first responders sometimes do not have the training or ability to deal with different situations with people with disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that people with disabilities face when it comes to emergency response and what the foundation does to help with that? Yeah. So our trainings have been happening for years now. You know, they started before I joined the organization because our founder is a uh, first responder. He's a firefighter in our community. There are so many stories out there that I'm sure you've seen on the news where somebody was unfortunately treated very badly by law enforcement because they didn't know that the individual had a specific diagnosis. And so things can turn really scary if someone does not have the language or is overstimulated by lights and sound. Community safety is huge. You cannot, you know, be integrated in the community successfully if you don't have those community safety skills to be safe when you're out. And so we've been training first responders for years now, all through the state of Nevada. And it's so important for us to teach not just the first responders, but the individuals and their family safe interactions in emergency situations. So what to do, we've partnered with different agencies and the university as well to create a training that is very simple, very safe. And hopefully our goal is to create safe interactions for all. Another thing that is listed on your website they do is this is Action Club, and it's a service kind of orientation where I know the focus is getting people into competitive employment. Mm -hmm. But one of the benefits, I think, of working, whether it is in a nonprofit or volunteering or at a job, is this sense of contributing, of doing something and helping and participating. Can you talk a little bit about the purpose of you know service and doing something for the community for people with disabilities who are probably used to people trying to provide services. And there's something good about being able to actively help others too. So can you talk about that dynamic and what the foundation does in terms of that action club? I love that you mentioned that. Absolutely. Part of our program is not just about jobs. It's really being integrated into the community. Oftentimes, individuals with disabilities are the recipients of community service or service learning. And we really wanted to give them the opportunity to go out in the community and give back because they are definitely able to do so. And it just provides such a sense of of community connection and purpose. And so we have partnered with tons of agencies and nonprofits in our community. So we've gone to the Humane Society and we helped clean up and do some of that really difficult work, but that gave us a sense of accomplishment in the Reno Bike Project and put together bikes for children in our community because again it's getting a job 
means money, but it means that you are part of our community. And our first step to achieving that is giving is starting on a uh, service learning level is allowing these individuals to identify where they want to volunteer and giving back. And so it's, it's really not even just about job, it's just being a part of the community. And if that creates an opportunity to make money, that's fantastic. But we our first step is just being involved in the Reno Sparks area, whether that's volunteer work, or that's helping individuals identify internships or apprenticeships. We just want to give them the opportunity to be involved. Mm -hmm. And I think all of these things have the common thread of not just helping people with disabilities, but their family and their social group, right? It's not just them that benefit from having a job. It's also if you're a, a caretaker of a young person with a disability and they can have a job that allows you to also have a job and do other things with your life too. Can you talk about the family and community dynamic with people with disabilities and how it's not just them, it's the people around them too that benefit from these kind of programs and services? Yeah. So the families that we work with, um, they have such a, a say in the individual's life. And of course they've been, they've raised them. They are truly concerned about their safety and their well-being. And so it's been difficult for us to come in and say, this is what the individual is going to do. This is what they want to do because we really have to have to be really sensitive on what the family wants for them as well. And so it's so important for us to sit down as a team and just identify the wants and needs of everybody. And so our, what our programs do is they give us an opportunity for us to work with these individuals one-on-one and that allows families to, you know, get a much needed break or do things that they, they cannot do because they're probably taking care of their loved one. But also it gives them an opportunity to have their loved one get support and services and allows them to take a step back and realize like, this is what needs to happen. Because unfortunately, what I've seen is that individuals, families, especially those that have older children or older parents, once you know they pass away, the individual might not have the skills to live independently. And so that's a whole other realm of difficulties that arise. But it's, you know, working with families, um, they have the biggest stake in the individual's life. I think they have such an influence and if the family is not supported, then it's really difficult for the individual to get support. And I've seen this time and time again when it comes down to uh, parents being overwhelmed and burnt out by caring for their loved one. Our programs really allow them to get a break, whether it's to go grocery shopping or to go out on a nice dinner with their partner. But we just try to be very mindful of what everybody needs. When we conduct our resource intakes, a lot of times parents come in and they are just solely focused on what their child needs. And when we ask them, what about you? What do you? need? What does the family need? It's almost like you can see it in their eyes. Mm -hmm. They're not used to getting asked that question. And so then we start exploring different options and supports and, and connecting them to mental health services for the family and all of these other things. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about that. It's just not the well-being of the child. But if the family is not doing well, then the child is not going to be successful. Yeah, you just mentioned mental health. And that's something we haven't really talked that much about in this conversation yet. But the mental health benefits of again, having this level of agency of being employed, of participating in the community, that is uh, very important. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, there's, I'm sure financial benefits of having a job, of course, there are good social benefits of having a job. Can you talk about the mental health piece of that too, and how it's actually good for you, you know, health wise, to be participating in the job and in the work economy and what you've seen with uh, folks that you've helped? Yeah, uh, you, you know, just hit it 
you know, the nail on the head that having a job not only helps you financially, but it really promotes your social well-being and your mental well-being because being part of community and being connected is so important to begin with. And a lot of the time, these individuals don't have that opportunity to be connected to their community in, in different ways. And so going to work and having a sense of purpose, like really, really helps their mental health in terms of feeling like they are just well accomplished. Another story that I have for you is one of uh, the young ladies that works with us. Um, she has tons of skills. She's not quite ready for the workforce. So we're working with her. But her biggest struggle was staying at home every day and how really that impacted her mental health. Um, she finished high school and then uh, is really just trying to navigate the services and support. And there's a lot of fun events that happen throughout our community on a monthly and weekly basis. But that employment gives you that consistency that you are going somewhere for a certain amount of hours uh, for a certain amount of days. Uh, and she can look forward to that. But not being employed, not being integrated in your community, not having the financial means, oftentimes to meet basic necessities takes a huge mental toll on you. And so, you know, at the end of the day, employment is not even just about money. It's really about your whole mental, physical, emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw that you just got some funding from the Thank You Ma'am Reno chapter, and I think that's a really cool organization. I've known a couple people who have been funded a little bit by them. Can you talk about what Thank You Ma'am is and what the experience was in applying for that grant and what that looks like? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love Thank You Ma'am so much. It was... uh... I was one of the first times that I've heard about them. They are a giving circle of women here in our community. And it's like over 100 women who give like $100 a quarter, which is amazing that they're giving some of their hard earned money to our community. And the process is that you get nominated from someone who's a member. And then you're asked to go to their quarterly meeting. And they pull four names of organizations out of a hat. And if you are pulled out of the hat, you have five minutes to present on the organization and where the money is going towards. And so it was our first time being nominated and we were selected. And I can't tell you how nervous I was, but <laughs> I knew what the money was going to go towards. I have a, I had a very clear vision of what we would use that money for. And it was ama- such an amazing opportunity. First time being nominated, being selected, and then being chosen. And really, I think it came down to being able to tell stories of the impact that we've created and the, the difference this program is making on the lives of individuals. Um, because I say HopeWorks program, I we started off as having a goal of empowering individuals to work, but it's it's much more than I tell people now. It's an empowerment program. It's not a job program because we empower them to talk about their diagnosis. We empower them to go out in the community and to do things. And so, yeah, the, the funding from Thank You, Ma'am has allowed us to really grow our program. We're beginning our, our next cohort at the end of October. And so with that funding, we were able to purchase an an amazing assessment software that is going to allow us to really dive into the individual skills and harness those and do some really neat things with rapid skill building and hopefully allow us to get them into the workforce a lot faster. Oh, amazing. Uh, I don't know how many business owners and people who are hiring listen to this show, but for people in the community in general, how would you recommend people learn more or engage more? What is the advice or recommendation you would give to just the average listener about dealing with people with disabilities or how they can help or, you know, do their part? That's a great question. I think it really comes down to equitable access to things. And so 
it really begins with word of mouth. If they are ever uh, know someone who wants to hire someone, but or is having trouble hiring people, like start to have those conversations. Like, have you thought about reaching out to such an untapped source of potential in our community? We also take on a lot of volunteers who want to help do mock interviews and teach budgeting and all of those skills or want to come to our empowerment exchange and socialize, but also any opportunities to volunteer or mentorship. I think it's a big one. If you want to mentor somebody within our program, it makes such a difference like that interaction and that point of view, or you might have an opportunity of um, internship that's just a few hours a week. And that's absolutely okay. Those few hours a week gives individuals uh, skills and purpose and allows them to be able to use, you know, what they've learned in other aspects of their life. So really to start to think about the untapped potential within this population and just helping us spread the word would be amazing. Excellent. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about the work you're doing or what the foundation is doing or about your experience with these organizations and communities? Yeah. What did we miss? I am always so open to partnership. Um, Our organization is so small. I am truly a a full-time paid staff and a part-time program coordinator. And so all of the work that we do is heavily dependent on interns and volunteers. And so we want to make such a difference in our community. We want to make such a difference in the lives of individuals and their families uh, with disabilities. So we would love to partner any way that we can. I love to brainstorm. And it's not even just nonprofits. It's also businesses that we love to partner with. And it's not just organizations and businesses that work with this population, but you might not. You just want to know how you can help and partner. And there's so many unique ways that we can support each other. So anybody looking for a partnership, I think I'm so open to just chatting about partnership because there's so many ways that we can support each other in our community. And truly, like I think together we can make such a difference in this community. Mm-hmm. How can people learn more and connect with you? Yeah, if people want to learn more about us or connect with us, our website, our phone number is on there. They can call, text. Um, we have a email box. That email gets forwarded directly to my inbox. And so I will be reading it. Following us on social media channels, sharing our posts, is continuing to build awareness around the organization. It's something that we're doing because we're doing amazing work, but we're also really needing to bring awareness around the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And what's the website? Justinhope.org. Perfect. Well, Marcella, thank you for coming on the show. It was great to chat with you and learn more about what the organization is doing. I know, like I said, uh, disability inclusion is sometimes kind of left off, I think, from DEI. So I'm glad for the work that you're doing and that we were able to talk about it on the show a little bit. Thank you so much for having me. October is Disability Employment Awareness Month. So Again, thank you. I think it's perfect timing that you had me on the show. And I'm so glad to share what we do and the amazing impact that we're creating. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Maricela Gutierrez Rodriguez, for coming on the show. Good to learn about the Justin Hope Foundation and the work that they are doing. If you enjoyed this episode, as I said at the beginning, let people know. Spread the word, share this episode, comment on social media posts. Anything you do that interacts with the show helps to spread the word and let people know about it. I appreciate that very much. Thank you to my new patrons. There's a few folks who've signed up on Patreon in just the last few weeks. Thank you so much for your support of the show. You've got stickers on the way. I got t-shirts for a couple of you. You can learn more about that again at patreon.com slash renoites. And be sure to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. I have a lot of really great episodes coming up in the rest of the season. We're about halfway through the current season. 
but I have some great guests coming up and I'm really excited to share them with you. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Really good stuff coming up. New episodes every Tuesday. That's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.